You can support the production of the Polar Geopolitics podcast using the links to PayPal and Patreon pages available at polargeopolitics.com and in the show notes to this episode. This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 49 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. Just recently, it's been the big Arctic conference, Arctic Frontiers, which takes place every year up in Tromsø, where it's not just academics and scientists that meet. It's actually something on a political level as well, something that I suspect is important for the government of Norway and also for a lot of the other actors that are involved with performing politics, governance, geopolitics in the Arctic context. That and the Arctic meeting in Reykjavik, Iceland, known as the Arctic Circle Assembly, are the two milestone landmarks of the Arctic calendar that play a quite significant role in the governance of the Arctic. So I thought we'd talk to a real expert on conferences as a governance and geopolitics phenomenon in the Arctic, someone who's actually devoted her PhD research to this topic, written a number of articles on the subject. Her name is Birte Steinweg. She's an associate professor of international relations at Nord University in Buda, Norway. Her uh, PhD dissertation was called Governance by Conference, Actors and Agendas in Arctic Politics. And she recently just uh, published an article in the uh, Polar Journal called Arctic Conferences as Arenas for Power Games in Collaboration in International Relations. And we're very happy to have Bitta on the phone line. Thank you very much. And thank you for that introduction and the ability to speak about conferences, which I love to do. <laughs> so first, perhaps you can tell us um, just sort of a big picture, why conferences, and we'll dig down deeper into the many facets of this, but uh, why, from the, your research perspective, why do you find conferences to be such interesting objects of study? Well, I have to be honest and, and tell you that this was not my idea. <laughs> when I applied for this uh, PhD um, um, project, the, the theme of the project was set uh, by uh, my supervisor. So I, I think that the interest, um, because I did my PhD at, at UIT, the university in Tromsø, where the Arctic Frontiers is, is hosted every year, so I think there was um, an interest in, in kind of uncovering what is the purpose of this arena and, and how it relates to the Arctic Council and other uh, governance arrangements in, in the Arctic. So, so the idea to focus on conferences was not mine, but uh, I <laughs> quite... Uh, I found it very interesting from the from the outset, and I decided to to focus my research around the Arctic Frontiers and the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik that you mentioned, because they are the two largest conferences. And I thought that if there is an impact coming out from these arenas, it should be from from these two yeah large conferences. And do you think that these, and you mentioned the Arctic Council as well, now that the Arctic Council is on pause because of uh, what happened almost a year ago now, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, do you think that these conferences become even more important, uh, Arctic Frontiers and Arctic Circle Assembly, since there is almost like a vacuum in terms of the official conferences? I mean, the Arctic Circle, I'm sorry, the Arctic Council is um, characterized by these uh, ministerial meetings every second year, the big ones, plus a number of other meetings inside of the... um, the uh, Arctic Council. Of course, there's there's a lot of things still going on, maybe less officially in terms of the Arctic Council. But uh, these big, these big high-profile meetings of the Arctic uh, ministers uh, are not taking place during this pause. So does that um, mean that uh, these other forms are even more important right now? 
Yeah, I've actually been thinking a, a lot about uh, some of the interviews that I did for my PhD now recently, where people uh, who are somewhat older than me <laughs> described how these uh, conferences, uh, not the two cases in my study, but conferences that go further back, have always been important to kind of keep the dialogue going and to kind of keep relations between the East and the West at least going at a lower level. So I think uh, on the one side that today with the Arctic Council pause that the, these conferences, um, that purpose is brought back, that you can have dialogue and, and interaction at least at lower level and, and between scientists. But I think at the same time that these conferences also struggle with how to incorporate uh, Russian actors at what level, etc. today as, as any other institutions or forums do. So they certainly are affected by the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine as well, and how to engage with Russia even in these uh, less um, that aren't exactly government sanctioned conferences. Although they are in some sense, I mean, especially Arctic Circle Assembly seems very closely tied to the government of Iceland. Is is that the case also with the uh, Arctic Frontiers? Is the Norwegian government also um, kind of a behind the scenes um, convening Arctic Frontiers? Yes, very much. I think the, uh, it appears more obvious at the Arctic Circle Assembly because the conference was started by by former President uh, Grimson of Iceland. But I think uh, you will find, if you dig behind the scenes, you will find the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, perhaps even more engaged with the conduct of the of the Arctic frontiers. So. So both conferences are connected to the uh, strategies and uh, and geopolitical interests of Norway and Iceland. So, uh, which also makes this situation with Russia difficult because there is an involvement from the governmental level. I mean, you're a political scientist, and one of the concepts in political science that I think is quite important in this context is the idea of convening power and soft power. Do you think that um, the Arctic Circle Assembly and Arctic Frontiers are these? sort of thought through and even conceived as a as a way to enhance the influence of Iceland and Norway in these Arctic settings? Yes, I do. I, I did not ex- maybe uh, anticipate this uh, element of these conferences to be so as strong as it is when I first started researching them. But both conferences definitely serve a a broader purpose for for Iceland and for Norway uh, in the region, and of course these are small states with <laughs> with limited hard power. So what they do with these conferences is they provide stages for for Norway and Iceland to promote their policies and and to kind of have a voice and and brand uh, Tromsø and and Reykjavik as kind of Arctic capitals or Arctic hubs for gathering uh, uh, gathering a variety of people every year. So there's also, uh, in that regard, an interesting kind of competitive element, I think, between these two arenas for for um, attention and partners and speakers and prominence. Arctic Frontiers, I guess, goes back quite a number of years before the Arctic Circle Assembly was first launched in, was it 2013, I believe? Yeah. Can you perhaps talk a bit about how these conferences are organized, orchestrated behind the scenes in terms of the planning, the selection, who is invited, and how these governments uh, work together, or not together with each other, but uh, work together with other partners on a local level to uh, to make to put together a big um, two or three thousand person conference, quite a large event. Uh, how does this how does this happen? I guess it's a year long planning process for these governments and for these organizing committees. 
yeah so the exact i don't know about the exact details but but i know that the the arctic frontiers has was previously it was established in 2007 and the focus the main focus of the the organizers back then was kind of to fill the need for a platform to bring uh, knowledge into decision making process, uh, processes so the purpose of the conference was to gather politicians and scientists and later uh, from 2014 onwards, I think, also business people to kind of make synergies between these different sectors. So in the beginning, the Arctic Frontiers was structured around kind of distinct policy, science and business days. But then I think the organizer realized that this way of organizing the conference, it's not purposeful for for creating synergies because the policy people come for the first two days and then they leave and the scientists come. So they've been working on that, I know, from uh, a couple of years back to kind of try to make panels more diverse and, and to bring in different voices. And a difference between these two conferences is that the Arctic Frontiers has an overarching theme for every every year, while the, uh, the vision of, of President Grimson with the Arctic Circle Assembly has been to, as he put it himself, to create an, an open tent under which he, he gathers everyone who wants to come and, and uh, speak. But the Arctic Circle, as you, Arctic Circle Assembly, as you say, it, it has grown, I think, from in the, at the first conference, maybe a thousand participants to it, today, it's more than 3,000. So, I, I'm glad it's not my job to, to select the, the proposals and decide uh, which session goes where in that program because it's it's become huge. The issue of voices is something I want to return to in a moment, but um, just in terms mm. of comparing um, these these two mega Arctic events to perhaps the most well known, let's say, elite conference in the world, um, which just took place uh, just recently. In, uh, in January is uh, the Davos, the big uh, World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. Do you think that um, the Arctic Circle Assembly and or Arctic Frontiers are in some ways inspired or modeled after the, the things that happened in Davos and maybe on a slightly less elitist level, but to the same sort of way of, of convening and gathering and discussing issues on a very high level? Yeah, I think uh, that, I mean, the Arctic Frontiers has gotten quite a lot of criticism uh, in over the years for being an elite uh, arena because it's very expensive to go there. Uh, so they have tried to kind of amend that with the, the arranged open Arctic arrangements uh, during the week, which is uh, which are open for everyone to attend and so on. But if, uh, if I were to say that one of these conferences are more like Davos than the other, I would say maybe it's the Arctic Circle Assembly. Because uh, obviously President Grimson's network and connections have contributed quite from the start to bring in presidents and prime ministers from, from all over the world. So, uh, yeah, it is uh, an interesting combination of these high-level people, but also these side events and side panels and, and breakout sessions organized by uh, institutes and organizations and universities and so on. I think I read in one of your papers on, on conferences, on Arctic conferences, that these breakout sessions, these plenary sessions, the, the, the stuff that's kind of the visible aspects of uh, the Arctic Circle Assembly, and I assume also Arctic Frontiers, is really, if, uh, if we use an Arctic metaphor, it's just the tip of the iceberg in some ways. The real, mm. the real discussions, the real important meetings where things really happen. 
things of consequence happen are taking place behind the scenes, and some of the more important actors hardly participate in the in the more public events. Is that is that a, a fair characterization of let's say the the most consequential aspects for in terms of governance and geopolitics and, and business affairs when it comes to these uh, mega conferences? Yeah, I would say so. That uh, I mean, many of these people who attend uh, these conferences who work uh, with Arctic issues, they have been doing so for uh, for many years. So these conferences kind of serve a, a twofold purpose that on the one side, they can contribute to, to educate the uh, less experienced Arctic players and who can benefit from, from what's taking place on stage and, and follow the sessions. But then you have this other group of kind of Arctic experts and, and people who have been working on, on Arctic issues for several years who don't necessarily need the information that's coming from stage, but they can use this excuse of the conference to convene and have their own meetings and side events and get-togethers. So I, I remember I interviewed one person for my PhD who said that he never goes to a, a conference without a kind of a plan of three things that he wants to bring back from this event, like three people he wants to meet or deals he wants to make. And I think if uh, if everyone thought like him, we would maybe see even more concrete outcomes of these of these conferences. I mean, in the, the voices issue... Um of course, you mentioned uh, Arctic Frontiers mm. has been criticized in the past for being uh, somewhat elitist because it's so expensive to go there. Maybe they've made some some attempts to open it up a little bit to other other types of uh, stakeholders. But uh, if it's only certain actors will have access to these closed door sessions and things like that, do you think there's a, there's an issue with voices? Certain voices get get um, prioritized. Others maybe are just kind of hanging around on the margins and don't really have any influence over the um, steps that are taken in terms of governance and geopolitics at something like a, uh, an Arctic Circle um, Assembly or Arctic Frontiers? Yes. Uh, yeah, I definitely think so. Uh, I mean, I found again in, the, in my research that in this regard, conferences kind of serve a twofold purposes that on the one side, they are arenas where states are not the only important actors. So they do provide a a stage or a, a space, at least, for a more diverse pool of, of stakeholders. But at the other side, it, they, <laughs> the conferences also mirror kind of power structures in the region and, and tend to advantage the loudest voices and the privileged <laughs> coalitions. And here again, there's a distinction, I think, between the Arctic Frontiers and Arctic Circle Assembly, where the former... Um, promotes the Arctic voices, uh, the voices of the Arctic states to a, to a larger extent, while the Arctic Circle Assembly has become this platform for non-Arctic stakeholders like China and, and uh, others to, to argue for their legitimate interests in the Arctic. Well, I think that's a very interesting aspect, particularly as you mentioned the Arctic Circle Assembly. In some ways, for my, I've been there two or three times Arctic Circle Assembly. It seems like that the assembly itself seems like it really does try to broaden the global aspects of the Arctic, to really make the Arctic into a, a place of global significance. It's not it, mm. it's not just the mm. Arctic states, the Arctic, direct Arctic stakeholders, but a much, much broader, and all these, these large delegations, whether it's from the UK or from China, it seems like it becomes like a big sort of a PR event. Uh, aspects of it become a PR event. Is that how you perceive it as well? Is that the Arctic Circle Assembly has served to actually broaden the 
interest in the Arctic, but also the conception of the Arctic as a, a region that involves global stakeholders. Yes, uh, definitely. I think that's a very good observation and also it was one of uh, President Grimson's uh, ambitions when he launched this this conference in 2013 was to, to make the Arctic global and to uh, promote Arctic issues also on other uh, arenas and in, in other states. So that's been, been his, his mission uh, from the outset. And of course, this objective of, uh, of his is not has not always been welcomed by by other Arctic states. And some see this um, Arctic Circle Assembly as trying to compete with the Arctic Circle, or that it's too welcoming and open for for non Arctic states to to have uh, a voice and, and in the region. So there's also. Uh, yeah, uh, an aspect of that. So you mean competing with the Arctic Council in terms of in terms yeah, of in, in terms of uh, uh, involving uh, non-Arctic stakeholders, and I mean they are observers, obviously, to the Arctic Council, but that is a position where they don't have any say; uh, they can just observe the Arctic Council meetings. So. So at uh, the launch of the Arctic Circle Assembly, it was uh, some concern that this could be uh, a backdoor for the non-Arctic states into Arctic governance. I think that was uh, kind of uh, uh, overreacting maybe. And it, uh, after several years, we see that the Arctic Circle Assembly has not served such a function, but that, but it does provide a, a stage for these, these actors to promote themselves. A stage is an interesting way of putting it. I mean, how much of this, of what happens at a big conference like Arctic Circle Assembly or, or Frontiers, how much of it is performance? Is it staged, to use that uh, that term? I mean, how much of it is actually kind of a, some sort of performance for some sort of politics without actually being overtly political? And how much of it is actually just legitimate expressing interest, expressing concerns for climate change and all the rest? How much of it actually is is basically performance? Uh, I think it's a combination, but of course, uh, for some actors, these uh, these conferences is um, they are an opportunity to reach a broader audience with either if it's a policy or a climate report or uh, whatever you want to to communicate. But as you you mentioned yourself, you've seen these large delegations at the Arctic Circle Assembly with. Uh, Switzerland and and China and and the UK and other non-Arctic actors and it's obvious from <laughs> when you look at these uh, grand presentations that it is kind of um, they're trying to sell a product in a way so Switzerland wants to promote itself as a vertical Arctic state <laughs> and China as a near Arctic state and and so on and this. Conferences are a good opportunity to broadcast that uh, message. I was there, I think it was 20, was it 2019 or was it 2018, when uh, there was a China night at, uh, at the Arctic Circle Assembly, mm. when there was this, this, this real spectacular, I think there was acrobats and, and food and, and, and all kinds of uh, Chinese cultural uh, demonstrations, um, which I guess, of course, they, they paid for at that event. I mean, how, how much do you think these things matter i mean it's is it just on the performance level or do they actually do they do these actually have some sort of bite do they actually influence the way people think of china or switzerland or other countries that are not arctic council member states as seeing them as being legitimate stakeholders in the arctic that should shape arctic governance 
I think uh, we need to look at this question at two levels. I think at the local level, especially with the conference in Iceland, it, it does matter uh, that the Arctic Circle Assembly has been a, a good means for um, for both the Icelandic government to promote its interest, but also to make connections uh, through the conference with other other actors and maybe in particular China. I think at, at the regional level in the Arctic or internationally, I think it's too soon to tell uh, whether these conferences have, have had an impact in that way. Um, but maybe, I mean, if China keeps coming back to these conferences and claiming to be a, a near-Arctic state, maybe in, in years we will all consider them to be a near-Arctic state. I certainly see these uh, these events as part of this constructing um, stakeholder identities for many countries uh, outside of, of the Arctic, um, mm. certainly uh, on display at some of these conferences. Uh, how much of what happens there then is, if, it, if not... If some aspect of this is staged and, and, and rehearsed and, and well-planned as PR activities, uh, public diplomacy, if you want to put it that way, how much is actually spontaneous? Is there new ideas, new uh, innovations in governance or things that happened that were not sort of part of, of these elaborate um, uh, public diplomacy schemes? I mean, I'm thinking about uh, this uh, one incident. This is just one that became got a lot of attention. Was this... Uh, I think it was a NATO admiral that made some comments that were objected to by China's ambassador to Iceland, He Rulong. Sorry about the pronunciation, but it was it was Rob Bauer who made these these comments. An admiral, that a Dutch admiral, is representing NATO. I mean, how much do things like that actually move the needle in terms of relations, international relations, governance, geopolitics in the Arctic? Um, I think, um, at, again, if we look at the regional level, I think um, some of the more spontaneous outbreaks that I have seen at these conferences are uh, coming from indigenous people and local people who feel um, that they are not heard uh, at these uh, kind of elite gatherings and that people are talking about them and not with them. So I think uh, that's one aspect that maybe uh, there's become more awareness around uh, the fact that you need to include all voices and also include the people and groups that you are talking about. Um, but at the more uh, state level, I think that um, uh, it, conferences are uh, can function as kind of testing grounds. So you can uh, you can present something that is maybe not uh, appreciated by everyone. But it, uh, provocative statements are also a, a, a way to move the discussion forward and, and uh, to bring new ideas and new issues onto the, to the table. And, uh, of course, there are uh, matters that the Arctic Council cannot discuss, such, such as military and, and security uh, issues. And I think especially in that regard that conferences have been uh, serving a, an important supplementary function to kind of have an arena to, to talk these issues out. I mean, you mentioned the Indigenous Peoples. I was at Arctic Circle Assembly this past this past autumn, 2022, and I happened to end up um, waiting in a very windy, <laughs> extremely windy bus stop with one of the one of the leaders of a, of a Indigenous Peoples organization. Uh, and then uh, then I ran into him again at the airport and sat down and, and had a drink with him. I really enjoyed the conversation with him. I'm not going to say who exactly it was, but. Uh, 
He, I think, appreciated the Arctic Circle Assembly, particularly because during this this pause, this Arctic Council pause, because he feels that the Arctic Council has been so important for indigenous people to have a voice in Arctic governance. And uh, with this pause, I think that the Arctic, some of the Arctic um, indigenous, some of the uh, permanent participants organizations in the um, Arctic Council feel that they've been left out of some of these discussions since there's not as much of the official meetings there is more happening behind the scenes which is much easier for them to be left out of i mean i've spoken to some other mm. arctic officials government officials that have have downplayed this but this is what this is what this uh, tribal leader told me and um he felt quite strongly about it and i think he appreciated something like arctic circle assembly where he could actually go even if he wasn't perhaps receiving the high profile treatment of some other Arctic stakeholders. At least he had a chance to, to, to speak to people, to be there in person and meet. Do you see this as being, a, during this, this indefinite Arctic Council pause, as being one of the um, added importances of, of these uh, other types of meetings? Yes, definitely. Uh, like I mentioned in the introduction, that these, these conferences are kind of a space to keep the discussion and the dialogue and interaction between people going. But at the same time, uh, we we always have to remember, I think, that especially traveling to Reykjavik and traveling to Tromsø from North America or other places, it's really expensive. So uh, while these conferences like to, to brand themselves as, as open and inclusive arenas, that also depends on uh, that you have the resources to go there. So they are maybe not including all voices and uh, and perspectives and it's not like it's a uh, that anyone from the street can just walk in that's a very good point and in terms of yeah in terms of accessibility I think that's maybe one thing that the uh, assembly has uh, an advantage over Tromsø and the Frontiers Conference is that it's so much easier to get to Reykjavik from North America and from Europe than it is to get up to Tromsø. So mm. in some ways, uh, Arctic Frontiers has to fight an, an uphill battle in, if, it's, uh, if it sees itself as a, as a competitor to the uh, Arctic Circle Assembly, which is very through Iceland. Iceland obviously has put a lot of resources into making itself sort of a, a stopover hub uh, in terms mm. of uh, transatlantic uh, travel, um, we do touch a bit about on this earlier, Bita, but um, perhaps we can dig in a little bit more in terms of the things that happen behind the scenes. I mean, I've I've been to, like I said, two or three assemblies, one or two frontiers, and I go there and I meet people and I talk and I feel like I'm learning something and you know networking or whatever you want to call it. But I also feel that I am just sort of like sort of skating on the ice of what's really happening. Through your research and your extensive interviews and studying of, of conferences, what kinds of meetings take place behind closed doors? What kind of decisions are made or what kind of measures are taken? Can you give us any idea of what you've learned? Like what kinds of, are we talking about foreign ministers talking to a senator from Alaska or, or what have you? What, what kind of meetings take place behind the scenes at these big conferences? Uh, I don't have exact knowledge about everything that goes on behind the, the scenes, but some of my observations are that uh, I think these conferences are a, a very important uh, space for, for regional and local actors. If you're a mayor or work in a small community to meet people in other small communities in the Arctic with maybe similar challenges and and you can learn best practices from each other. So I know, for instance, the Arctic Sur- no, the Arctic Frontiers. I'm sorry, has been used in conjunction with the with the conference. They've had had this mayor forum with mayors from in the circumpolar north. And and I also think that it's a good space for maybe if you're a 
business person or uh, you want to start doing business in a community or, or an area, you can familiarize yourself with with the relevant actors and, and policy actors to engage in that region. And I mean, do you have any tips? I mean, you, you're, you're a frequent visitor to these conferences. Um, as a researcher, going there and, and going there to actually learn about the sort of the, the, the mechanics and the dynamics of these meetings, I mean, I would think that a lot of our listeners of this podcast have attended a number of Arctic Circle assemblies and Arctic Frontier conferences over the years and kind of maybe know the ins and outs of, of uh, how to approach going to a conference like this, planning for your visit and what to do while you're there. But um, from your from your work, for those that maybe don't know, some kind of showing up and they want to increase their own voice, they want their own voice to be heard, whether it's an Indigenous person or some sort of startup or, or another researcher or journalist. I mean, how do you have any tips on how to approach these conferences? What's, what's the best way to go? Is to go and try to see as many breakout sessions as possible or is it to go to the to the mingle sessions and, and, and be assertive? I mean, what, what tips would you give to how to approach a mega Arctic conference? Yeah, as I mentioned also earlier, these conferences have grown really, really huge so that the programs are kind of overwhelming. So I think step one is to familiarize yourself with the program and see what's going on at what time and, and what am I interested in, in listening to and, and engaging in. I always find kind of panel discussions maybe to be the most interesting. So where you don't have just people speaking from the main stage and and leaving, but you have uh, maybe interesting panels with people who don't necessarily agree on everything and also the opportunity for the audience to ask questions. And I think before going to a conference, it's maybe good to look at the program, who is who are speaking, are there people I want to meet up with, should I contact them beforehand to see if they are interested in talking to me. And when you're at the conference, I, I would say that following the advice of this person I, I interviewed for my PhD to try to think, is there something here I can bring back to my work, to my community, to my institution, to kind of keep the dynamic of the conference going and bring ideas and initiatives forward so that it's not just the same conferences talking about the same things year after year. I also uh, came across in your research, um, you see these these big conferences as as part of the institutional landscape of Arctic governance, right? These are these mm. are not just meetings that kind of come and go. These are actually institutions that, that happen every year and important things happen at them. I mean, how would you compare these mega conferences in an Arctic context to other aspects of Arctic governance, whether it's policies or, or strategies or strategic investments, other things that governments and other actors do to shape an agenda, sort of a, an agenda for the Arctic, um, both on a national level, but also internationally. How, so how do you sort of compare this to these other measures that, that are more typically thought of as, as governance? I would say that maybe the two most important things is, for one, that these conferences are open to anyone to attend, granted that they have the resources. So I think you can get more innovative ideas and more dynamic discussions and uh, more conflict in a in a good way and more tension between people with different views and things that can contribute to kind of driving the discussion forward and the the other thing is that even though these conferences are kind of staged you can you can get spontaneous outbreaks and yeah people that don't necessarily disagree which i think is a 
also an important element if you want to develop policy. I mean, do you think that these meetings have a significant impact on the sort of the general agenda of the Arctic, of, of the governance agenda and the dynamics? Do these matter on that level or is it something under that? This agenda setting function of conferences, I think is maybe what I've been struggling most with in my research to kind of establish and to, to decide what, what exactly is the outcome. I think if you're looking at these conferences, if you're asking if these conferences in a strict uh, understanding of agenda setting, are they agenda setting arenas? I would say no. That I think they more reflect what goes on in other processes within Arctic governance and other states and policies. But at the same time, I do think it's possible to say that that these conferences are are spaces for kind of marketplaces for ideas. So if you look in the long term, I think what takes place at these arenas, they, it can kind of trickle down into Arctic Arctic governance and and maybe at least contribute to shaping uh, other processes. Just to wrap things up here, a very fascinating discussion with you, Peter, here today. We talked about these two, the two largest conferences, um, Arctic Frontiers, established in 2007, Arctic Circle Assembly, established 2013. But there's a number of other rather important meetings that take place in the Arctic, uh, on the Arctic annual schedule. There's the Arctic uh, Science Summit Week, and there's a number of other smaller meetings that are maybe annual or, or occasional how do you uh, how do you see those? Do those play an important role? Uh, maybe, of course, in, in terms of the science, the, the ASSW is, is is very important. But do you see any of these meetings is also sort of feeding into the general um, shaping of the Arctic, quote unquote, as we know it, and the geopolitics and governance of the Arctic? Uh, yeah, I think that all conferences contribute within this Arctic regime complex or Arctic governance structure as kind of if nothing else, than meeting places. But it's also spaces for creating synergies and making connections between other elements within this uh, this system. As you, you mentioned, there are science-specific conferences. There are also business-specific conferences in the Arctic. What I think is unique with the Arctic Frontiers and Arctic Circle Assembly is that they're more kind of hybrid conferences where you have this policy, science, and business aspect. So you you really have the opportunity to bring together a, a very <laughs> diverse and, and a large variety of different actors to these two arenas every year. Peter Steinweg, Associate Professor of International Relations at Nord University in Buda, Norway, way up in uh, the the north of Norway. Although, even though you're in the Arctic Circle, you were telling me that it's here in early February, it's raining up there. It's a little bit disappointing, (laughs) but uh, I guess that's uh, that's kind of the the weather of the North Atlantic. But uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate uh, you uh, taking the time to join us here on this podcast episode. And I really recommend our listeners to check out uh, Beata's research. Thanks very much again for joining us here on Poor Geopolitics. Thank you so much for having me.